Welcome to Breeder Syndicate. All right, today we have here Chimera and Red. Uh, they are our founder. I can't even say found. Shouldn't say founders, but you guys kind of are of the BC seed scene. You you guys were there in the early days of the BC seed scene and the BC cannabis era, the boom. And uh, we just wanted to sit back and pick your brains on, on what you guys went through, the early upcomings, and your, your guys' adventures through, through your era. Yeah, well, thanks for having us on this Oh, it's an honor, show. man. Yeah, I don't even really know what to say, man. BC. I, I, grew, I grew up on the east side of the country, okay. and I, I didn't meet Kip until the early part of, like, 2000s, I guess, really, late 1990s, late 1990s, early part of 2000s. And uh, so our, the Canadian scene was just really so different back then. I mean, there was it was really segregated all across the countries. Different provinces treated cannabis quite differently. You know, BC, kind of the left side of the country, BC being the most lenient kind of equivalent to yeah. California. Um, but a lot of different types of scenes going on. Quebec, for example, um, was like really quite controlled or at least influenced by the health of the biker gangs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't really as like open, but I would say the West, you know, at least starting in BC, it was really BC, such a massive um, province. Yeah, it's four, it's like four times the size of Germany, kind of thing, right? So it's it's really quite large. Yeah, and there's only I don't know the population. I guess back then must have been around three million. It's only four million now. So you can imagine like space to population ratio. There's a lot of places you can go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah. a lot of small, a lot of small towns, a lot of places to go at the end of the road and set up a show or dig a bunch of trailers underneath the ground or, <laughs> yeah, or, right. or whatever. So, you know, people really did everything back then. It was like, it, it was so open. Um, at least, at least in British Columbia, and anybody could get into it. You know, I mean, I, I think probably, and, and one of the reasons I think it was so accepted as well is that like every family or every person knew someone in the cannabis business, whether you were a grower, uh, a, you know, a broker or a trimmer, sure. like really the, the, just like it is in Northern California, you know what I mean? Yeah. The cannabis scene feeds the local economy. It is the local economy. It drives the local economy. Yeah. So without the, without that local economy, I mean, you're not going to have gas stations. You're not going to have restaurants and, you know, we got this, this, town in, in the interior of British Columbia called Nelson, BC, mm-hmm. um, which became a little bit known in the States about 15 years ago or 10 years ago. I can't remember exactly when it was, but they put up a statue um, to recognize the draft dodgers that came up from the States, like in, in the 60s and 70s. Oh, wow. Right. And because these guys would show up, you know, they, 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 dra- they dodge the draft. They'd come up to Canada. You wouldn't have a social security or social insurance number. Uh-huh. Um, so you couldn't you couldn't be part of the regular workforce, and so these people, sure. these guys, would start setting up growth, and they're typically like hippie minded folks anyway, too, right in the area. Yeah. Era. 
and it just you know growing cannabis really just fit in with that whole thing and and what it was it read there is like the number of car dealerships or high-end restaurants in nelson is like it's way 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 above normal <laughs> <laughs> populations because like people there have money to spend like miami during the 80s with the cocaine boom yeah probably a yeah. little bit like that and but Nelson's really like I mean it's the middle of nowhere. I mean you're on the other side of the northern border from Montana. Uh-huh. Um, it's quite remote, like in British Columbia. I mean it's far in the interior. It's not like there's a big three lane highway driving in there. Um, so it's, it's got to be like a what seven hour drive from Vancouver. So it's uh, it's it's really an interesting little place that developed this this cannabis community. And, and you know, like I said, it. You know, I mean, Fox News got all bent out of shape, obviously, when that statue went up. Oh, I bet. <laughs> but it's the kind of it's the kind of place that would do that and support. Well, know, I mean, conscientious objectors were were usually um, kind of social misfits, as it, as it were. So I could definitely see that leading to a growing community. You know. Yeah, and there was so there was another community like that on the east side of the country called Killaloo, Ontario. And uh, I don't know. There's Canadians that are listening, but we've got this pastry they they make called Beaver Tails up here in Canada. <laughs> and uh, they, anyway, they're they're from Killaloo, and I think that those guys also came from that same area. Uh, they had a, they had one of the Beaver Tails called Killaloo Sunrise. But they, you know, I I I was often wondered if that was like a you know a money laundering thing. It could have been, and, yeah. And excuse me if I'm totally way off base. <laughs> but it was just, you know, like those were the two co- the, those two communities on the west coast and the east coast that really, you know, that really were made up of mostly draft dodgers or at least a significant portion of draft draft dodgers. And so they kind of became these cannabis hubs. Yeah. Right, to a degree. Um yeah, so I don't know. It's it's been a weird transition in the last like really thirty years to watch this whole thing develop. So, you know, I mean, what was your what was your first entrance as far as like when you were when you first started smoking? What were the strains that were around that you were running into that kind of inspired you even to get into cannabis genetics? So I, I mean, when I was originally buying dope, it never it, it didn't come with a name. Yeah, yeah. Early on, ours didn't right Mexican brick just. This brick, red hair, purple hair, you know. Yeah, the first thing that I I, I went to the school and down the road, this there's my fr- my friend ended up running into this guy who's a real, real skid mark. He was like a real, he just this weirdo that was that sold drugs, I guess, to some of the high school students. Yeah, and uh, you know, I remember buying weed from him, and he had what was what was referred to as BC skunk or the the skunk weed or whatever. Yeah, and that was this had to be you know early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, it was just not like that. That's just, that was, I think it was the first time I saw anything with a name, you know, and I had this other dealer I would typically buy from and he had all these really nice import hashes and different kinds of flour, but it was, you know, it'd be like, I'd show up and he'd be like, Oh, I got these purple buds. Yeah. You know, it was like, you know, that kind of stuff. Or I got like a, a red cherry honey oil, but, and those were the names that you'd get. Yeah. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't branded. It wasn't cultivar names or anything like that. Um, and I, I think really that that probably didn't actually start. I mean, I think that there was obviously people that were going over to Holland and buying seeds, but True. you know, in Canada, there was no legal seed sales until marker. Sorry. There was no above the counter seed sales. I'm going to sure. say legal seed sales, but until Mark Emery started selling seeds. Yeah. And you know, and I remember seeing the first copy of, 
what became Cannabis Culture Magazine, which originally Cannabis Canada Magazine. Yeah, and uh, he had his seed he had his seed catalog on the front in the front few pages, and I think that was really when I was like a kind of you know open not open my eyes but like you know I really started to understand that there was this larger world of cannabis cannabis seed banks and types of varieties and all it all wasn't just weed because yeah. that's you know, when you're buying from a from a unregulated market where you're just buying whatever the dealer can get his hands on. Sure. That shit's not important. His name isn't important, right? It's like, do you have something or not? Yeah. If it, yeah. When shit can go dry, it's not a main priority, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Red? What you got? What was your first entrance? Wow. Yeah. So I grew up in Southwestern Ontario back in the eighties and, um, you know, we didn't see grass, man. I mean, we saw a lot of hash oil, uh, uh-huh. which would be called RSO now, I guess, um, and import. And that all came down from the St. Lawrence, uh, from the uh, rock machine and the bikers uh, coming down that side of that laneway. So, I mean, honestly, the dope to us was, you know, $15 gram of RSO, two for 25, or, or import of 3D hash. Uh, yeah. came down. And, uh, that was it. It wasn't until, I, you know, I got out to... Um, uh, you know, kind of dead tour, uh, let's say late 80s dead tour on the East Coast. And um, and then ultimately made my way to Vancouver to go to school at UBC. Uh, did I actually see flower, uh, to be quite frank? Uh, I know a lot of guys in my area going back after I did, as it were, were all, I knew kind of more about growers and that scene kind of when I came back to visit from uh, BC and found out there were a lot of guys that were growing in the cornfields, you know, because, yeah. <laughs> but especially the organic certification that always give you um, – harvest dates uh weeks yeah. that they were going to be harvesting so you'd always go in plant your you know your, uh, your weed between the rows and then take it out at least two or three days before <laughs> the guys would come get it so you know, let, let the farmers do it themselves do it for you back in those days but That's yeah, my, yeah yeah southwestern ontario in the late 70s and 80s um but uh yeah i mean i kind of got out to bc in uh 90 91 um to ubc did an undergrad uh, degree there uh and really kind of got immersed in the cannabis scene um the, the varieties of cannabis uh the ease of it the ex- acceptability of it i mean i came from ontario man puffing a joint in public with sacrilege you were just looking all around waiting to get popped and yeah we walked down the streets and van and just didn't give a shit no one cared and it was just this freedom and this wonderful culture that i found myself in uh and it really was exciting so you know, I uh, graduated uh, among uh, between going to Grateful Dead shows, <laughs> somehow graduated and um, really, you know, just got into the scene very quickly. Um, yeah. You know, knew a lot of folks that were moving a lot of weight. A lot of stuff was going down south, obviously, uh, yeah. back in those days. Um, the cannabis culture scene on uh, East Hastings, which would have involved you know, Mark Emery's uh, Hemp BC, which became cannabis culture. Um, Blunt Brothers with uh, Daryl, uh, the Amazon Cafe, or the Amazon, sorry, the Amsterdam Cafe with Karen Dunlap. I yeah. mean, there was a whole scene down there, man, like in, in one of the shittiest parts of town anywhere in North America. You had this <laughs> real estate pot block where you could go down, puff in cafes, the cops weren't going to come bust you, hang out with like minded people, really start making connections and understanding you weren't, you know, this individual, you were part of a larger community. Yeah. And it was really dope, man. Um, it was kind of then that we started kind of figuring out like the, the, the boards, the forums, you know, like, uh, uh cannabis world, um, heaven stairway. I mean, I'm going way back now, yeah, yeah. Pro, things like that. 
where you they expanded this community um, that wasn't just in Van, but it was North America and especially our Yankee brothers and sisters down south. I mean, that were, you know, you guys would do jail time for a joint where if we get, you know, white privileged up our ass up here and get a slap <laughs> on the wrist and told to go home, you know? Yeah. So um, it, those were the kind of, that was kind of my first introduction into the kind of the more global or North American scene. And, and we quickly realized, you know, starting up small grows in Vancouver, it was easy peasy. I mean, the worst thing if you got busted was you would get told to go sit out front. They'd chop your plants, take your ballasts, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was it, man. Restart. Restart, yeah. yeah. So having three or four houses. And, I mean, rent was cheap back in Van in those days, too. So, I mean, you and, and pounds were going for 32 Canadian at that point in the game. Yeah. So, I mean, it was well worth it. An eight-lighter could put you in a new tax bracket. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, no shit. Um, and so we figured out pretty quickly that, you know, you, you could grow Sensi, uh, or, you, you know, and, and, and that was great and fantastic and get cuts from, you know, guys you'd meet online and thing, or seeds from Amsterdam, things like that. Sure. Or you could start making your own seeds because there was this huge market for it. And I mean, one room of making seeds was like five years of profits in, cannabis, in uh, Sensi, right? Yeah, that, that's really true. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we kind of started doing that you know and we started creating some seed companies and realizing that there were other seed companies across canada so uh an old business partner in mine started legend seeds as a seed brokerage house and we, we started carrying the dutch stuff uh, uh and canadian seed breeders at that point in the game um at that point i mean i think there were maybe six seed companies on the world wide web <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> at that point man yeah so and most of them were dutch or mark you know yeah yeah um, so it was, uh, that's kind of my first, like, that's how I kind of got into it. Uh, you know, we'd head to Amsterdam once a year, grab the seeds we needed to, you know, somehow they magically appeared back in Vancouver and we sold um, worldwide. We took out ads in the back of High Times, you know, 1-800 got seeds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> things. Um, you know, really that kind of blew up for me personally. And that's kind of how I met uh, Chimera, to be honest with you. I think I met him and was it Heaven Stairway or Overgrow? Right? Yeah, it was the it was the cannabis culture. Uh, no, not cannabis culture. Cannabis world. World. Cannabis world. Cannabis world. Right. It was those guys yeah. out of Quebec, and uh, I think I was selling Mila's um, isolator bags back that's then. We had exactly we had, what we had, it was. Yeah, that's I, what it was. Eh? <laughs> yeah, it was actually one of those moments where it's like I realized that my internet security wasn't great. Like I had, <laughs> I had I had made a post online about the needed some bubble bags from you know our friend Marcus Richardson and. Yeah, I guess Red had been selling them in Canada, a different brand, the Mila, the, the pollinator company bags. <laughs> and I remember going into my university email account and there was an email from Red. <laughs> and I was like, I posted on this website and now this guy has my email address. Like, How the fuck did that happen, right? Well, see, yeah. that was the part of the problem. But back then, I, I, I never felt like we were doing anything wrong. So to me... My security, especially living in BC, because we just didn't think that we were untouchable, really. Yeah, that yeah. It was just normal, and I was going to act like it was normal. And I keep forgetting that you know, my Eastern brothers were still getting pretty dodged out by <laughs> yeah. shit yeah, like well, we had to. I mean, looking back at it, it was an insane level of security. It was probably <laughs> obsessive, but... You know, I mean, that's kind of just what you learn to operate under when you're when you're operating under these harsh laws, right? I mean, I, I was in Ottawa, which is, you know, think think north of Utica or Buffalo, kind of up that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, near New York State, and um, yeah, there. I mean, it's the capital of the country. I mean, that's where they decree the law from, right? So, you, when when they talk about federal law in Canada, 
it's really enforced differently in the capital than it is kind of on the, in the West Coast, right? On the West Coast, you know how it is in California. It's kind of like you look back at D.C. and be like, ah, oh, those goofs back in D.C. are making laws. Yeah. You know, we're going to go, go on about our lives here on the West Coast. It's kind of the same thing. But they really do enforce it differently back there. So, I mean, you're – you know, you're ducking and covering while Kip was feeling secure in his little in his his grows out on the West Coast. You know, I was panicking my ass off every time it started to smell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't much different in California. Even today, there's still like I live in Bakersfield. You know, you drive six hours north to Humboldt or seven hours north to Humboldt. It's a different world. It you is know what I mean? like a yeah. totally different world, night and day. Yeah. Yeah, and it was pretty much it was it, it, up up until most recently, to be quite frank. Even with legalization, things haven't really changed that much until the last say five years of of wreck legalization up here. Attitudes uh, generally, I mean, much more conservative out in the East Coast and Central Canada than it is on the West Coast, of, which I mean, of North America in general, I could probably say. Yeah. Um, but one of the a great story was that uh, how we actually met Ryan was I convinced him that you know I wanted to meet him face to face and. Um, my partner at the time, Karen Dunlap, who owns um, Amsterdam Seed Company and Great Canadian Seeds. Yeah. Uh, and uh, another friend of mine, uh, Pete Young, who actually is one of the founders of Indiva. And he's also, um, what do you, super, what you know, super cropping? Super cropping, you know. Yeah, yeah Johnny's really was, good friends with, or good, good friends with Pete. He just did oh, an okay. interview with him. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, grew up in, I grew up in London, so well, I was like you? a... 14 year old kid when Pete and Chris Clay were doing their whole thing. So I was kind of born in that scene. Um, yeah, we interviewed Pete already. He's super cool. Sean, are you kidding me, man? You're from London. That's hilarious, brother. Yeah. Are you from London? I, I kind of, yeah, okay, there you go. Yeah. I, a lot of people were born in London. There's something about that town. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, I, like I went on, I went on kind of tour after the dead, but I, I was on like fish and stuff like that. But I swear I would I would go like anywhere I went in the US, I would meet some fucking weirdo from London that, you know, it's just like a weird connection. And yeah, right? there's something like, about that place. My very first time I met Mark Emery was when I was 16 buying my two live crew out. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> how old are you? What's your, how old are you? I turned 50 this year. What? Okay. I, you don't look it, dude. Yeah, you don't look it. I'm 43, but yeah, I was buying records in City Lights and same thing, yeah. Two Live Crew and shit yeah. like that. But that uh, strip there with the, uh, what's that? Um, Richmond? Yeah, the no, the clothing store next to Lehman House. Oh, yeah. Right. Like City oh Lights, God. Lehman oh, House, oh, and then uh, Pete's Shop across the street. Yeah. Yeah. That was like organic traveler. Yeah, organic traveler. Yeah. So Pete and I actually met over in um in Europe in Switzerland when we were at okay. a, uh, doing a grow out there at one point in the game. Yep. We became very, very good friends. So uh, the, th the three of us hit the road uh, essentially and we traveled all around Ontario and Quebec and went to head shops back in those in that second yep. what, what year was this, Ryan? Was this like oh two, oh one? Something yeah, like well, that. see, you you and I had actually met before, but that yeah, I don't remember what year that must have been twenty two thousand must have been two thousand and two or two thousand and three. Yeah. Oh, uh, my apologies, partner. No, 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 because it was it would have been two thousand. It would have been okay. two thousand because okay. she wrapped my seeds over in Europe later on. So. Right. So we went and we were going to all these uh, head shops and we were trying to get them to sell seeds or at least carry yeah. their catalogs so yeah. that and we would kick down all of the you know the owners that they handed out our our catalog. 
so we got to meet a lot of folks. That was a great trip. And then one of our stops was in uh, Ottawa with, uh, <laughs> with, with Ryan. And that was the first time I, I somehow convinced him to, to let us sell his seeds, I believe. Is that how it worked, Ryan, or my computer? No, no, no. We were already – so you and I were already doing business. Not were we? Oh, see, there you go, man. But, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Karen picked up the distribution account at that point in time, the wholesale. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's right. You uh, and I, I met, you, we, our first time we met was at the Jazz Fest. Oh, mind blowing! Right in Montreal. My my bad. Sorry, guys. Like I said, it's been a many heady years ahead of me or behind me, I should say. Um, that's right, Jazz Fest. My dad had a place, uh, Cary Saint Louis uh, Brownstone in Montreal for years, and we'd kick him and his family out, and I, me and my friends would take over as Brownstone for Jazz Fest. And that's <laughs> right. That's where I met Ryan uh, and Bubble Man was at that uh, was uh, on that trip too, right? We went and saw. That's uh, who, right. Who did we see? Oh, we saw a whole bunch of great bands. Martin, anyway. Martin Modesto Wood. Yeah, MMW. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Carl Laswell and Eight uh, Track uh, with the, with the drummer from Napalm Death. What a crazy. What? Yeah, <laughs> man. It was a wacky show, dude. Um, but yeah, those uh, those were the kind of the start days. Um, and then you know from there, you know, uh, my C Company Legends. Uh, well, and and Ryan would come. We'd go over to the High Times Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam every year. We had a booth. Um, our first booth uh, was <laughs> was literally like a small table with a bunch of T-shirts. Um, and then the, the second year, we actually got a real booth. And the second year, we were actually right beside uh, Bubble Man. We had our booths right beside each other. And and uh, we did fairly well there. And we got to really connect with all the Dutch guys, like Ari and the Dronkers and, yeah. um, you know, all the boys over there. And they became kindred friends, you know, because uh, we were these, uh, you know, cannabis cowboys from Canada. And these guys yeah. were the old Dutch guys. And they were kind of showing us the ropes. And we were kind of the, the new upstarts. They really, I got to be honest with you, they, a lot of them were really generous with their time and their information and, and were really quite friendly to us. So it was kind of fun. That's yeah, really back cool. Then, back then too, Canada was kind of like the leading, you're not Canada. I want to say BC was the leading edge, right? I mean, pre, pre, pre prop 215 in California, yeah. they were still clamping down on everybody. Right. So, yeah. um, Vancouver was this little scene where the American growers come up, get their seeds for starts and uh, and that was really you know Vancouver was the hub. So I think the Dutch folks really saw that you know Canada was kind of the leading edge of a new territory, and obviously they wanted to have their seeds in that new territory and making and, money. And it was it was their input to North America, really, even to the U.S. scene by by people traveling up to Canada. It's much easier to get to Canada than obviously Amsterdam. Exactly, and mail too. You know, I mean, there's people yeah. that are comfortable coming up and bringing the seeds back, and then there was the mail order guys that would ship them and. Yep, people would come back and ship them themselves. You know, I mean, oh yeah, like the seed scene down in on Hastings Street, especially at at Marks at Hempy Seer Cannabis Culture. Like on Saturdays, man, the the Yankee lineup was out the door. Like oh, buying, bet, people coming buying seeds, and of course, back then, you know, Mark would owe us all these like seed producers money, and he'd give us his card, and on the back of the card it said, "I owe you five hundred bucks," and every Saturday you can come down and pick it up. So of course there'd be like six seed guys on a couch, and we're all waiting for the next yank to throw the money down so we could get cashed out and get the fuck out of there. Because <laughs> it was we were just wholly frightened by so it was so sketchy down there. Like there was oh I bet was so much dodginess going on down there, and but it was the only way we could get paid back in those days. Yeah. And, um, so we you know again met a lot of folks, <laughs> so yeah. for our money down there, uh, and made a lot of great connections. And uh, yeah, it was a trip being a part of that whole thing honestly my favorite part of that scene down there and ryan i mean did you did you spend a lot of time at blunt brothers ryan 
I did love the Blunt Brothers when I moved out there for UBC. I never, I stayed away from Mark Emery because I just thought he was such yeah. a piece of shit. Well, um, and, and he was. It's <laughs> <He is. laughs> a universal opinion, I think. Yeah. Yeah. When, yeah. When I first moved to Vancouver, I a friend of mine flew me out from London actually to Vancouver, but we had a room in the the old Crosstown Traffic building. <laughs> And it was sketchy as fuck in there. And yeah, I lived in that area for a couple of years and yeah. Wow. Crazy, man. Well, you, yeah. you've seen some shit then. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I, I wanted to ask you guys some questions because like back then for me, this is like, I would say 98 to like 2000, maybe the Texada time warp was pretty huge. I had friends on the Island there that were always hooking me up and stuff, but, uh, uh, are is that still kicking or like are those people still doing stuff? So uh, I I recently in the last six years spent two years living in Gillies Bay on Texada Island. Uh, okay, and I spent two years in Powell River as well. I was I was growing on Texada actually. Okay, um, and so um, I can let you know unequivocally this is a true story because I met the folks. <laughs> so there was a there was a family essentially in the seventies that had the original cut uh, seventy nine, and that cut was pretty much kept. Uh, or passed down or in or IBL'd to be quite frank um, yeah. f- up until about late 80s and then you know then there was other cuts that were just called time warp because you could get the money from them uh, you know and so that was really tough but the original family still lives on the island yeah. um, third generation um, pop farmer is still there uh, they're still growing it's not the original the original has been lost for decades um, but it is uh, of that line yeah um, and now like pine warp pine berry I mean there's a lot of really classic uh, cultivars that come out of that area um, again I mean it's funny Texada is just one of these wacky places man that just exists in the world and you really don't believe it until you actually see it for yourself right yeah and, there's two cops on the island. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> you know? I, I lived on Salt, Salt Spring Island for a summer. Okay. And, like, they don't have cops at all. They're like, they'll have cops show up on a Tuesday, and they drive around the island, and they leave. And That's essentially, nice. like, the mentality is if you're not hurting another person, we don't give a fuck. So yeah. there was, like, a peyote church there. There was a lot of shit there. That's right, dude. I mean, it was just, uh, like, complete freedom, you know, on those islands. Gulf Islands are a, a unique and beautiful, amazing place to be. Um, mm-hmm. Back in those days too, right? The early '90s, Laskidi was like they were pumping yeah. tons of dope off Laskidi. Yeah, well, they they're known for having like the Mighty Might, the Laskidi Mighty Might. Yep. Yeah, Norm from Norm from Arthrology. I don't know if you're going way back now, but uh, there was a, a, a kind of a dispensary called Arthrology before there were dispensaries. And this guy named Norm from Laskidi Island, he was one of the guys that kind of started this. In fact. He came out and told everybody in High Times magazine, <laughs> we're about Laskidi, and goddamn, the next season, the whole thing was raided by the cops. Oh, no. Oh, wow. ne- never saw Norm back in the scene after that. Shockingly. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually had some, but I'd, I'd heard of Laskidi way earlier. I remember I had a friend that was out working at a, a ski or like a hiking cottage, like a helicopter and hiking cottage kind of thing in the middle of Alberta. And he sent me some bud back that one of his buddies from Laskidi had brought out, and he called it Laskidi Sweetie, and it was some of the strongest herb that I'd smoked when I was like one of my last years of high school. Really, really fucking potent dope. 
it's it's man the weather patterns around those two islands the skeeting texada are are their own weather patterns you can get away with going deep into late september early october without the rain melting everything yeah um and and there's just quite frankly there's not resources anymore for, for people to be busting or back then there wasn't anyways i mean they, they got a little crazy with the helicopters a couple of years when we had some conservative governments in but um it was just freedom man and you could you could get good money for poundage back in those days for outdoor dope um, you know, you can't give away outdoor now. <laughs> well, yeah, those, right. were, those were American choppers back then, though, in like the you know ninety four to ninety six. They were like the black the, the black copters, right? Yeah, nah, that's that's right. You know, he, so I'm gonna jump around a little bit, but I'm gonna go back to the pop box for a second. When Mark got busted. Okay, so during that time on the pot block, a lot of movie scenes sets would set up on that pot block all the time. Like when oh, you I see a, a down and dirty back alley, it's 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 right behind the East Hastings Alley near Camby. Like that's in every goddamn movie. So we were just used to it being shut down. And I had my seat office was about two buildings down from from Cannabis Culture, and uh, we had an office there. You know, with a administrative assistant, so that's where we shipped everything out of. And I had a, it, a parking spot right in the back, right beside Cannabis Culture. I paid two binners, five bucks a day, so people wouldn't piss on my car. <laughs> and, uh, best five bucks I ever spent. I you know? And um, so anyway, so I'm just driving down there one day, and I, I, see, I see a whole bunch of, like, DEA jackets and guys with Bella Calavas, and, and there's, like, you know, barriers up. And I'm like, oh, Christ, man, are they fucking filming again? And one of the kids who used to work at Cannabis Culture, Sean, he comes ripping out. He said, Kip, get the fuck out of here. You don't want to be here. And I'm like, this is real? <laughs> this is why are there Bubba Calava DEA agents taking away a Canadian citizen? I don't under what the yeah, hell? that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we it, it was ludicrous, man. Like the party was over after that, you know. Um, we were so felt so free and so you know wonderful about what we had done and quite entitled to be quite frank. Uh, and uh, the, the fact that our government was going to allow a foreign government's police force to come up and, and arrest a Canadian national. For something that the the Canadians themselves wouldn't bust them on was abhorrent and yeah. insane. And even if he was a shit bag, yeah, even if he was a shit bag, exactly. Yeah. It's it's not the it's the it's not the point, right? But yeah. what he is personally, what he was doing, he shouldn't have been arrested for. I'm sure yeah. it was about ten thousand other things he could have been arrested for, but not that. Yeah, um, you know. And I remember, remember Ryan, were you part of that at that point when we all got together at John's? No, I was up island with DJ on that oh, day. I remember I remember I was right at that moment that you're talking about. I think you called me pretty much right away. Yeah. But I was sitting around with funnily enough, Charles Scott and DJ Short up oh, on Vancouver. Oh. Everybody's favorite. Oh, Reaper man. Oh Lord. Yeah, no, it was that was a bizarre thing. <laughs> we, we were invited to go up there. So Dan and I drove up and uh, and, and spent the night in the teepee up there. But uh, it just happened to be that very day. And I remember all three of our phones rang within like 30 seconds of each other. And it was some one, some person in the community, Mark's getting arrested. You know, and we were with Charles and he was, you know, selling stuff down to the States at that point in time too. So, you know, we wanted to make a, a pretty hasty retreat from there because we thought that that place might be next, right? Yeah. Well, um, as, 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 as Mark was the largest seed seller in North America at the time, our company was number two. So we were genuinely freaked out at that oh, point. I'm sure. There was a, a number of us um, that were in the cannabis community, the owners of Blunt Brothers, Karen Watson, myself, um, another couple of key big growers in town that all ended up at John Conroy's farm. Um, 
a very famous uh, cannabis uh, lawyer in many constitutional, won many constitutional challenges in Canada. And there's all of us sitting there and John's is like doing triage. We're all freaked out and John's kind of trying to talk us down. Yeah. And I, I remember one of us saying, well, I wish they would have just given us a heads up, you know, before they did this. And John looks at us all. He's like, they just did, asshole. <laughs> like, Fair enough. Fair enough, John. <laughs> Yeah, funnily enough, too, I mean, another thing that was just a weird, bizarre coincidence was that the um, Jorge Cervantes and the High Times crew had been up um, filming this BC Bud video, High Times BC Bud video, you know, where George used to dress up in the in the, in the Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so um, another set of business friends of ours had bought the bank across the street from Mark Emery's shop, right? It was like this two-story old like you know early 1900s built bank with a vault and they were going to turn it into a club and as that was like you know the process was coming together and they were raising money to get the club together it was sitting empty so george and co built a grow room in this bank across the street from fucking emory from emory's shop just as something we could use as a stage right so that we could film this video it wasn't yeah it was never going to get lit up and plants but we you know we built it so for the video you can show this is how to build a grow room kind of thing sure little do we know the dea are all over the fucking block right like yeah. i'm i'm pulling up in my in my explorer and unloading all this grow equipment into the fucking van oh, and the dea are staking out like they literally hit the hit the hit the, the store across the street like two days later yeah, um, it was those were crazy times man we like, times. yeah it, it definitely kind of was an end of an era, to be quite frank. When 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 you know Mark got popped, and then Blunt Brothers burnt down, like all within a matter of six months of happening. That the, basically the 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 pop block scene was done. Um, no one felt safe down there anymore. Um, you know, some of the um, gangs had kind of taken over the street level uh, cannabis trade and sure. weren't making it as safe as it used to be. Um, and yeah, just quite frankly, everyone kind of went their own way. Um, you know. Uh, at that point, Ryan, you, you've been living in Van for how long? Well, it was, must have been like 2005. Yeah. So, yeah, just a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we, my partner, Karen Watson, was still running the Sativa Sisters Kind Sanctuary, which was a pot bed and breakfast, which was so oh, much wow. fun. Yeah, man, just having Yanks come up and, and letting them be so free and, and yeah. watching the stress melt off their face when, like, as soon as they got to the place, like an in-house dealer came in and asked them what they wanted, you know, oh, I I'd, meet, you know I'd meet them for seeds and, and then they would have all these, just hang out at the beach or go down to the pot block or, you know, but we, that was kind of closing up at that point in the game. And, um, you know, we were still running uh, legends. Um, but I was, you know, it was getting a little long in the tooth, you know, I was, um, not really, I was tired of looking over my shoulder. I, I, I ended up opening up a store called High End, and it was right in Kitsilano, and it was kind of, it was called Cannabis Couture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was maybe a little far ahead of its time. We had like $5,000 Jason Lee pieces in there. And, oh, yeah. You know, like just ridiculous. Like, you have to be a super rich, like, cannabis hippie to come into our store. Yeah, cannabis nerd on top yeah, of that. Yeah, total cannabis nerd, man. Like, we were selling the very first volcanoes out of there. Oh, and, wow. And we had bamboo clothing and organic clothing. Uh, but we were selling seeds out of there, and there was a pizza hut right across the goddamn street, and there was these two undercovers that would just sit there and take pictures of us, like, every day for months. And I'd, I'd get followed home, and, you know, oh we'd be trashing burner phones every two weeks, and 
I looked at my partner at one point in the game, and I was just like, I, I, I don't want to do this anymore, man. Like, yeah. it's just stressing me out. I had just kind of met the woman I ended up marrying and having a child with, and I was like, you know what, man? I think I'm just gonna tap out because the Harper was in. Things were not happening on the scene in the scene anymore. I was getting tired of getting followed home every night. Sure. And, uh, I sold. I ended up selling Legends uh, to a bunch of kids who ran it into the ground within about four months. Um, and then I basically took a bit of a break from <laughs> cannabis for um, about seven years uh, in the, the industry. Anyways, uh, I got into the wine business uh, in yeah. BC and did that. Uh, and it wasn't until my brother-in-law kind of got me back into it that uh, about uh, six years ago that I kind of came back in. But I guess that one big piece I guess we're missing is that piece where we, we worked with the DJ. Um, and that was kind of happening just the 2002, 2003. So I had met Dan um, years previous in Vancouver. He was up he, uh, through a mutual business uh, partner, a friend of ours. Um, you know, obviously knew about Blueberry, uh, sure. the, the flow. I mean, the guy was a bloody legend. Yeah. Not only was he a legend, but one of the kindest, most giving human beings you'll ever meet. Um, his time, his information, his ears. He listened. Like he wasn't there to tell you about what he's done in his life. Yeah. He yeah. was there to, we wanted to genuinely know about you, what your scene was. And, and then, you know, I knew him for years and I, I, I learned new shit about him all the time because he kept his cards pretty close to his chest. Yeah. Um, and anyways, you know, he, we'd, we'd met when we were over in Switzerland together. He came out and visited us over there. We developed this great relationship and, uh, he said, turned to me once said, he said, you know, it's time for me to make some new seeds. And uh, we were really lucky enough, my crew and myself, uh, to be the recipients of that contract. We ended up making his next, his first batch of seeds and that had been released in like 10 years, 12 yeah. years. And that was the True Blueberry, the Flotica. Um, the chocolate one, Coco Kush? No, that would have been his release. His the, the release that happened after our release. Okay. So that was probably gotcha. about six or seven years after that. Gotcha. Uh, that would have been. Um, let's see what else we had in there. Grape Crush. Like yeah. Flow thirteen and Grape Crush and. Yeah, yeah. F thirteen right. and the uh, Grape Crush. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, then all of the one-offs that I did for uh, Legends back then too, which would would have been the high end, which was the Rene uh, cross with the blueberry. I always chased that and could never find it. That was Brother, you and me death. both, man. <laughs> I still, you know what? Somebody on this podcast. Yeah, I, I've got 30 of those in the collection. <laughs> oh, what? Yeah. yeah so I, I was, one of the things I would always do when I was de dealing with business with these folks is, is dealing with the wholesalers. I always just trade for stock. I mean, I yeah. obviously sell some stock, but, you know, it was always about buffering the collection. So, Anytime that I heard any of this, like, for example, when Federation, I heard that they were going out of business from the seed supplier. I just traded them a bunch and collected all their old stock. And, oh, wow. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, I've got all those early reg Legends releases as long as, as well as the same ones that we ended up making at the same grow for, uh, with, with my joint projects with DJ, the Mental Floss and Fighting Buddha and all that stuff, right? And, and man, guys, one of the, some of the greatest advice I ever got from John Conroy, our, our lawyer, I see said tech. I said, like, give me one set of advice. Better advice, John. He's like, well, just grow west of Granville, Kip, because they don't bust rich people. And this house that Ryan's talking about was literally in one of the richest parts of town in this old house that was overseas landlords, this big old ass house. In fact, we had like, like NHL hockey players like right beside us. And <laughs> little did anyone know that we were banging out a 10 lighter out of there for like, years out. and years and years. 
And so many famous seed crops came out of that uh, that basement. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool, man. Um, so yeah, with like the Louie, we did another batch of Louie out of there. What else did we do out of there, Ryan? The Blaze, the Johnny Blaze was out of there. Oh, I still have some of them. Man, I oh, but close to my heart because that was a Neville's haze yeah. uh, that I was given by um, Arian from Greenhouse Seeds out of his personal collection in Amsterdam. And uh, those were the same batch that he had done some breeding with for Greenhouse as well that were given to him um, um, by Neville uh, yeah, yeah. back in the day. Yeah, so, that was like right around the time he was starting that seed bank. Or he was, I mean, he, he claims he was going on forever, but really that was yeah, yeah. the start of the greenhouse seed bag. Shanti, I don't think, had even set up in Switzerland at that point in time. No, well, um, he just, just set up. up. He had yeah. just set up, because he was down the valley from us. We were in Lugano, and he was closer towards the border, um, and he was down there. Um, Scott, Scott's just a nice guy. Uh, I'm just so happy and thrilled that he's actually still in the game. I actually got yeah, to meet yes, Howard Marsh. Um, he is. He's such a great man. Um, I got to meet Howard uh, in Bern oh, cool. at, a, at, a, at a cannabis um, uh, conference back in those days. And, and he's everything you'd want him to be, just a drunken Welshman with That's nothing awesome. but smiles. And uh, it was really hard to understand him as he got drunker, though. <laughs> that, that Welsh accent's rough, man, for yeah, American. It is, but I just kind of smiled and nodded, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have this great picture of us in a... Pete and I, Pete Young and I, in a field in Switzerland that we camped on for months um, uh, with a big ball of hash and uh, reading for the first time ever, uh, Mr. Nice. Uh, and, and then I got, a, I got a chance to meet him two months after initially reading the book. Was, oh, that's um, wild, man. Uh, it was so cool, man. It was, it was definitely a bucket list kind of thing. <laughs> Have you seen the movie? Ah, which one? It's called, it's called Mr. Nice. It's, I, I think it. it was done in uh, the 2000s at some point. Okay, I haven't yet. Is, I, I got to find it. Okay, it's, very cool. It's good, but it's nothing compared to the book. No, nothing leave, compared to the book. They leave out so much stuff in the book. Yeah, yeah, the book's good. I have a few. I, I think I have one written by his wife as well, if I remember correctly. Yeah, she kind of did her whole side of it yeah. too. He, he wasn't too thrilled about it. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> I bet. There's always, there's always another side to the story, right? <laughs> did, oh. did JD Short go out um, to Switzerland with you guys? So he, um, I had come back to Canada. I, I did kind of two tours in Switzerland. After my second, my first tour, um, yeah, DJ's kid came out and did a couple of weeks there. I believe two, maybe two to four weeks. I think he did there. I remember because he had, he he was the kid that broke my the, the pipe that won uh, a medal at the uh, cup, the cannabis cup. This like beautiful four thousand dollar heady piece from Shockwave Glass and. Yeah, he was the kid that broke it. I'll never forget. Oh, he yeah. felt so bad for years. <laughs> oh, but, that's um, great. Honestly, you know what? I've never had a chance to meet him. Um, kind of like ships passing in the night. Uh, I haven't seen Deej. I, I think the last time I talked to Deej was probably seven years ago up by email. Um, yeah, we, we, were, we were all really, really close for a while. Then you know how life gets. Just yeah, life takes you to go on different journeys. Yeah, yeah. DJ was trying to move up to Canada during all that time. He and his his lady of the time at the time were trying to actually emigrate to Canada. Um, yeah, they lived in the porn palace. That's, uh, that's, that's right. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> this beautiful penthouse in this four story walk up that had an elevator right to the bar. That that's where your front door was. Shag carpet, like gold inset, inlaid mirrored walls everywhere. Like oh, that's it was sweet. straight out the late seventies. 
Um, Karen Watson actually lived there for a while, and then she moved out uh, from the Amsterdam, and then she moved out in Deej, and Carla, his then wife, uh, moved in. So many uh, nitrous tanks. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 it was that place was a, a lot of memories lost in that place. This is what that was. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of yeah, I, I I was going to UBC at the time, and um, I was living on the west side, and and actually just around not not too too far. I think it was about like a two and a half block walk from BJ's place. So we spent a lot of time over there on the weekends, just hanging out, chatting, and you know, le- awesome. learning about Dan's experience with drugs and psychedelics and all these other different things. And a lot of yeah. I remember a lot of LSD. <laughs> <in the face>. Yeah, <laughs> and the Scooby snacks too. We had oh, these the things. Scoobies we, were everywhere. Oh, what is Scooby snacks? They're like they're like um, a blend of mushroom and. Uh, like yeah, it was like a natural, mushroom. natural mushroomy sort of psychedelic mix. There you they go. came in there capsules, go. right? They were like came in cap. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that Hell light yeah. brown, light brown powder. That's so awesome. okay. So what was yeah. in them? There was um, like pollen, spirulina uh, and bee pollen. Uh, yeah, uh, spirulina, ginseng, shisandra, uh, bee pollen, uh, fotu ting, and one point three grams of cubenzies. Oh, <laughs> nice. Hippie dust. Hippie dust. Yeah, exactly. In, in the six caps, right? So you could you could do a couple of caps for one cap, or you could do them all if you wanted the, the full. <laughs> We actually, man, uh, so I'm in my shop, uh, <laughs> I'll talk about it now. I didn't give a rat's ass. We used to sell them <laughs> out of the shop um, to friends and family. We used to make yeah. cards, and you get stamped for every pack. You get a uh, stamp, and if you got 10, you got a free pack. But yeah. what we do is if you wanted your friends to be able to buy them, they had to sign the back. You had to sign the back of their cards. So it was a mutual responsibility zone going on. Yeah. And uh, and it worked out really well. Sometimes uh, Friday nights, there wouldn't be anybody in the store all day, but as soon as Friday at five hit, the place would be packed. <laughs> <laughs> That's rad, dude. Yeah. So can, can we talk about some of your guys' uh, favorite work that you've released over the years? Your, your favorite, maybe fa- favorite to you, not not necessarily high, but your, your favorite experience when working a line. What, what would that be for you, Red? Man, you know, I got to be honest with you. This, I, I mean, probably growing sense uh, uh, up in the caribou with Ryan was there, um, and our friend the cannabis cowboy. Uh, yeah. I really. So we were doing shade cropping and tunnel crops, um, and so we'd get about three uh, harvests out in the season. And mm-hmm. We'd always we'd always be done and out before Labor Day, before the helicopters started buzzing. So. We, and plus, it would be so dry back that time of year that back in the day when things got dry, um, that you get <laughs> top dollar for your gear. And yeah. we were doing these shade crops, so it was kind of like greenhouse dope. Mm-hmm. And but we could pass it off as like high end B indoor and get yeah, some yeah. money. But man, I learned so much um, just being out in the you know up in the plateau at five thousand uh, feet uh, elevation, um, sun beating down on us in the middle of bloody nowhere. Uh, bears chasing us, cattle ranch walking over a cattle ranch, walking over our damn pits. We had a <laughs> the Telus blimp one day flew like 50 feet over our heads, and of course, it's <laughs> freaking us out. And uh, just drinking beers, eating good food, telling lies, um, growing dope. It was just yeah. a lot of fun, man. Honestly, as far as that did my heart warm, that was my favorite part because everything else I did was very stressful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I felt safe there and it was with good friends and you know I still liked trimmers back then, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it was yeah. okay to hang out with them and 
and um, just learning about people's experiences with the plant, how they came to the, be in this crazy place where we were trimming up to you know three, two or three hundred pounds of dope in a season. Yeah, for sure. And um, those that was my, my my one of my funnest events with cannabis. I mean, I've had a lot of really unique experiences and a lot of very stressful experiences with dope yeah. because of the time frame that my um, kind of life was in this in this industry. Uh, but I said that was, that was probably my favorite. What about you, Ryan? It's kind of you got to love everything. I mean, I, I always say when people ask me what's your favorite cultivar, I mean, it's, it's like it's like children. You know, they become like your children. Yeah. So you kind of love them all for a different reason. But yeah, for me, it's just always screening. You know, the screening and the and looking to see what what the crosses did and trying to understand like the the patterns of inheritance and you know getting to explore new traits that you don't like. I mean, I. I I got this one girl going on right now. We're doing a sour diesel sweet skunk screen of like 150 seedlings. And, you know, sour diesel, like the, the ECSD cut is all fuel, right? Yep. And th this is the first time that I've, that I've really grown these ones out in large selection. And, man, it's just like that that nose profile from the sour D just got stomped on. Oh, really? By the sweet skunk. Yeah. Like you think that, that fueliness was just dominant over this. But, and it, you know, I've seen it a, a few times. Like you get the surprise a few times when you make a cross and it just comes out completely yeah. unexpected to what you'd, you'd be looking at. But within that, there's always these new interesting nose profiles, right? Yeah. And whether it's a combination of esters and chirps or whatever, whatever it is, you know, there's some really interesting scents in there. So that's, that's kind of always been my, you know, favorite thing is, is, is doing it that way. Yeah. You know, it's a totally different experience having the lab to lay on top of that too. Right. So, oh yeah. Cause then you can just, you, the gains that you can make when you have, you know, chemical fingerprints, both cannabinoids and terpenes of the plants that you're mating together. It, it's really remarkable. Like, yeah. That's really one step I've never taken, it, it, including lab results and all that stuff while you're doing the breeding and going through the progeny. That, that is so valuable. Yeah, well, and you know, when you're doing it, you, you, you can kind of do it when you're doing it with the females, you can kind of do it with your nose. But when we yeah. were always, used, when we were using males in the past, you're really fucking hitting blind. Yeah, you are. You're waiting right. to see if the progeny carried on the traits you want. If not, you got to start over. Well, and, and often even trying to evaluate like a male plant, the male plants don't really demonstrate those traits <laughs> anyway, right? Yeah, like, no, you're right. Yeah. That's just you morphological. And, and that's a guess at that too, right? Yeah. And we've done all sorts of things like try to spray ethophon on the plants and try them, yeah. to get them to produce female flowers. And they do that. But, you know, ethophon also changes the terpene profile as well. Yes. So it, it's, you know, it's, it's a hint at what you're doing. Just the um, smallest glimpse. Yeah. And you, you don't know, know if it's going to breed true for that trait. Anyways, it, well, and that's the whole thing is that even when you do have the fingerprint, in the lab, like, mm -hmm. you, you know, say you've got one, you've got three plants that all look the same in the, uh, or they look almost the same. They smell all, almost the same. And you, let's call them plants one, two, and three. You cross sure. plant one to plant two and plant one to plant three you and plant two to plant three and you grow them all out. You can actually realize that even though all those plants, they look the same and they smelled the same, one of them had genes from another smell and look, right? Yeah. So one, one cross they don't end up looking the same. Whereas like, you know, if we, if they cross two to one, they all look the same. They smell the same. Right. So yeah. they can, you know, genotype can essentially hide behind chemo chemotype. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but chemotype is a good predictor, but it's not a hundred percent. That's right. Right. But it, but yeah, when you breed chemotype to chemotype, the differences between, you know, crossing a blind male to a chemotype is just night and day. 
right? And you really can start stabilizing things and making your seed lots that more that much more uniform. It's Absolutely. fucking expensive, dude. I bet right? dude, that's the one thing that's precluded me from doing it. Yeah, well, I mean, and even if you do it in house and you can get your your consumables cost down to say like twenty five, thirty bucks a sample. Yeah, you know, if you want to run a thousand plants, that's fucking twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah, that that's a serious project. Yeah, well, it's probably more than the weed is worth from the crop. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> right. So it's like it's a hard thing to justify to be able to do, mm-hmm. but when you do do it, the the gains are undeniable. Oh yeah. Right. And, and, and this the, is what's going to have to happen moving forward in the Canadian scene. If if these companies don't start putting money into R and D and really starting to look at the same five plate flavor profiles that like are prodigious throughout the entire goddamn industry up here in Canada right now, then you know, we're we're doomed. And I think that the smarter companies are starting to figure that out. And I really I really hope that to be true as well. To be quite frank, because I'm tired of smoking the same old shit. And if I like, Cush this, cush that, cookie this, cookie that. Yeah, I'm bored with it, man. I'm done. Yeah, and you guys, you know, I think the states has always been a little more advanced than Canada has in that, um, you know. And I think that the real reason is you guys have a client base or a market, a consumer base that's willing to spend 500 bucks an ounce. Yeah, yeah. Right. Some, some places for sure. Some places, Absolutely. you know. I mean, New York used to be like seven thousand dollars a pound for sour yeah. diesel, right? I mean, that yeah, was right. a period of time, but. Um, You'd never get that kind of money in Canada, right? But yeah. people who just couldn't afford, wouldn't pay that kind of money. Yeah. Um, well, and when you when you do spend that kind of money, it allows you to put all those nice, beautiful finishing touches and grow the small yielding varieties with the unite with the exciting flavor profiles. But it will be interesting to see like which mistakes the the developing legal market follows, like in the same way that we did in Canada. You know, like. The, the pub coification, like this big, these big corporate companies coming in and trying to take over the industry, they, they don't ha- have the same view of the marketplace the way that the consumers do. do. And so I think markets in California, they're going to be able to maintain, but some of these less developed markets as they come online, I think that they're going to suffer a lot of the same, the same places because the government's, you know, they don't want to give out a hundred licenses. They want to give out two, three licenses, and then you only have to yes. monitor a few groups. Yeah, absolutely. And if all those groups are like big corporate dudes that are just trying to pump out like a million square feet of flour, your quality is gone, right? Because it's like you can't do that much bulk and maintain the level of quality that you expect. Yeah. And I noticed a lot of these companies, um, the the major corporate companies, they're coming into a market that they just clearly don't understand and they don't understand the characters in the market. And usually the first people that they run into are the people that have also no understanding of the market, but they sell themselves <laughs> as that, you know, premier master breeder grower. And that's, that's been a big problem in, in the U S is that most of these big corporations hire whoever comes first uh, with the best sales pitch. And, and anybody that they end up hiring after usually has to clean up the mess of the first one, which is a double task. Oh man, you speak in my language. You, you, <laughs> I know yeah. no idea. Some of the messes that have been had to be cleaned up up here. It's, it's really, like, you know, you, you sure there's a lot of people that have made money, but there's a lot of people that have lost their shirt. Oh, yeah. You know, you know investors, investors going in with the wrong grower. Or, you know, I, I remember doing a tour in Colorado and I went and saw this place and I was toured a bunch of different facilities. And this, these, this lighting company asked me to come by and see theirs. And they had, they had a grower who, who claimed to have written the book on LED growing. And he actually had a book, How to Grow wow. Marrow or Cannabis with LEDs or something like that. <laughs> And dude, the plants looked so fucked up. Like they were, they were, they were having serious nutrient deficiencies, pH issues. Yeah. 
and, and you could walk in. I saw it right away. I was like, oh, your pH is way too low. You're locking out magnesium and calcium and, you know, the plants yeah. are just crazy stressed. And so I, I was, the, the boss was like, hey, can you walk through our facility and have a look and tell, tell me what's going on? And I was like, okay, grower guy, like, what's the pH going on? He's like, oh, I don't know. We don't have a pH meter. <laughs> and I was, I was like, he's like, well, we got one, but it's, in the, it's, you know, on that shelf where nobody ever uses it. I was like, go get your fucking pH meter, calibrate it. Didn't have calibration solutions. So I sent him out to the grow store to get, like, you know, distilled water and <laughs> calibration solutions for his yep. pH meter. And he came back and we ran this test. But it was like, you know, he, he was, he had been spinning this tale of lies to the investors about what was going wrong and the truth was that he was completely fucking incompetent as a grower way over his head in like a facility is like you know 50 60 000 watt facility and just had no clue what he was doing at all right and and start after story and i pulled the owner aside and i said it was the first time i'd ever done it i felt really bad but i was like you guys need to fire this dude like you need yeah. to fucking get rid of this grower because he's fucking up your show he's fucking up your investment right like mm-hmm. And but it's you see it. I mean, and it's not just in the grow side. It's in the sales side. It's in the processing side. It's in the marketing All side. It's, it's again because because again you get these peoples that come from you know consumer packaged goods from CPG, and they're used to running these big companies just treating like whatever product it is like a widget, and yep. applying the same you know supply chain procedures to that. And you can't do that with cannabis, no. right? Cannabis is like shipping fresh strawberries. It's not like shipping like widgets from china exactly right exactly. um and the whole supply chain needs to respect that like the distributors and everybody otherwise your your beautiful fresh fr- strawberries they end up fucking squashed and molding by the time you know they're they're in front of the consumer and you know developing these supply chains and essentially you're building out a whole industry from scratch it's like there's all these iterations that have to go on right yeah well, on top of everything, then we have uh, provincial and federal oversight here in Canada, which is stifling innovation, uh, stifling um, moving the, the the needle on the industry forward. And uh, in, in fact, in some respects, it's, it's pushing it backwards. The fact that we, as in a province, have to sell to a provincial board is fucking insane. That is insane. I didn't it's know insane. that. Like so. This 25-year-old girl who got a government job and is in charge of saying yes or no to the SKUs that I bring to, to, to the province to be able to sell for my small cannabis growers, she's going to tell me what she thinks she's gonna, what they're going to sell because her last job is at Best Buy. I mean, yeah. give me a break. Yeah, like it, right. It's insane, and it's, it's, it's downright criminal. People have invested their lives, uh, millions and millions of dollars, and then they grow a crop and they bring it to a provincial board. The board says, no, we've already got three, three other Sensi stars. We don't want your fourth one. Sorry. And you're just like, well, but why? Why can't I just go right to the store and sell it to them then? You yeah. Know? There's so much more that needs to be done up here. Um, wow. But it's Canada, man. Like, we love government. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the thing with, with oversight like that. It, it does stifle progression yeah. in all industry. Too much oversight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think people would be remiss if I don't ask Red about Ortega and your experience with your Ortega. <laughs> My experience with Ortega. Well, when uh, I was over in Switzerland, it was the first time I'd heard about Ortega. Um, we, uh, I was with a business partner over there in a project, and uh, another one of our uh, potential business partners uh, flew over from California. 
with a couple cuts um, this- right into right into Zurich, and then they he met us down in Lugano. You and, can uh, you can see who it was. I, oh, it was, it was Ed Rosenthal. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sorry, yeah, fair enough. I mean, geez, poor Ed. Anyways, <laughs> um, I think I like yeah. I literally, I think it was like in a backpack. It was hilarious. So. The two cuts that he brought over were Ortega and what ended up being grapefruit, which was crazy because yeah, that's right, a, a cultivar we were very familiar with, um, and it was a pure Ortega cut. So Ortega also there was Ortega one, two, and three put out by Neville. Um, well, they were, yeah. they were Neville's last batches that he collected in California for Seed Bank Originals, yeah. which was one of Legend's first companies that we ended up carrying. Um, I carried Ed Seeds in Southern Tier, and then. Neville seeds and seed bank originals that were in Ed's care and yeah. Ortega one, two, and three, which was a hash plant cross. Okay, Ryan, help me out here. I can't remember which was which. Northern Lights hash plants. Uh, I can't remember the other one. The NL hash crosses. plant was the one that he told me personally. He's like, that is the most potent thing I ever bred. Well, I got to be honest with you. I, I, the only from how much uh, time I spent with the plant was with the original Ortega mother cut. Okay. Yeah. And that one made to this day the best hash that ever came out of uh, one of those little hash shakers you remember those goofy little things yeah, yeah. where you put the buds in little screen you ship it, yeah, ship it, yeah. it. <laughs> okay so and we had one of those over there in uh, switzerland we and I, you know we would always be clamoring to get the ortega bud into this because it made that black sticky gooey like almost import style hash yeah that i love so much and it was a hammer of um of a plant Obviously, we didn't have labs and things uh, that we had access to back then. But my best guess is going to be heavily myrcene dominant because it mm-hmm. made me sleepy as a motherfucker. And um, but it, I mean, and the size of the resin heads were massive. You look underneath the microscope; they were huge compared to the other cultivars that we were growing. And that um, we ended up uh, crossing the Ortega mother with the um, Sweet Tooth number three at the time, mm-hmm. and that that the became the BX2P1. Sorry, it was the BX2P1. Same oh. same. Uh, yeah. Sorry, my apologies. This is why Ryan's here. He's got a way better memory than I do. Um, <laughs> and uh, we we created the Legends Ultimate Indica. Um, I remember that. I still have seeds of it too. Luckily, that's very cool. Those yeah. tiny little pinhead yep. seeds. Yeah. Um, the Louis was a really really popular strain for our company for years. Uh, yeah. And the cuts we we had a, a clone house in Van and. We pumped out thousands and thousands of cuts a month out of that. It got to the point that I think we killed our own market within a year. No one wanted it anymore. (laughs) Every broker had Louie. (laughs) Because it was a heavy yielder. Um, It was light green. It checked all the boxes as far as buyers went. Yeah, you'd cut the tops at six weeks, right? You'd have to. You'd have to cut the tops at six weeks. Wow. Right, it was so big, and uh, that was just the selected pheno that you guys had from that was the bulky pheno. Yeah, but my guess is that, and I know I was bashing Kush earlier, but my guess is that, that the Ortega is probably some form of Kush from way back when because just the potency alone, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the structure itself, they were buttons. It was like a little yeah. bush with buttons. They there was no cola structure to them really, uh, just a pile of buttons. We grew it outdoors, we grew it indoors. I became very familiar with the plant. Uh, you know, you know a, a small part of me would love to see that out and about again, but as I get older, to be quite frank, my flavor profiles tend more towards the equatorials and more towards mm-hmm. the lemonine, the pineines. Uh, and my favorite one right now is cedarine. That, that is crazy. We're seeing it starting to come in piles of Cedar- COAs. Cedarine. Cedarine. Yeah, that's yes. popping out in cannabis? Like what, what kind of strains yes. pop out the cedarine? Uh, mother of all berries. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I have that cut. Yeah, yeah. Mother of all berries, and what's the other one? Not Granddaddy Perps. Um, was it the no, Planet of the Grapes? No, that no, was Planet of the Grapes. 
and mother of mother of berries. Those are the two that I've seen the cedaring uh, very do do dominant actually in the COAs. And man, can you ever taste it? And it's, it's an exciting kind of new flavor profile that is becoming a more dominant that I've, I've really gotten excited about because it's just again something different. It's something something new, new and unique. Yeah, yeah. It's not just smack you over the head with nursing and bitter carry off. Yeah, and, yeah, right. And uh, the same old, same old, which is eighty percent of the shit I see every day. But again, I mean that goes to equatorials. You don't make money on if you're a commercial nope. grower, time-wise, yield-wise. I keep I keep threatening Ryan. I say, you know, I'm gonna get out of this goddamn business. I'm gonna open up a micro and just call it the House of Hayes. Have two drops a year. It'd be about like 16 weekers, and that's it, man. Call it a day. Just you know, um, the seed market's actually slowly, and I and I, I credit a lot to to Chimera and Bodhi, both of them from doing work with equatorial sativas over the years, I think that people are finally starting to like realize there is unique highs that you can never reach in an eight week plant or a nine week plant that you can get with these equatorial sativas. And there's slowly a, a niche market forming, which is really uh, awesome. I agree. I, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to see, you know, when you're talking about more equatorial uh, leading uh, cultivars, things like, um, you know, that are terpenaline dominant, you know, yeah. like oh, to me, like I'm, I'm a terpenaline junkie. It's like doing a, a line of herbal Coke, you know, like yeah. vacuum my house in one shot. Um, and, and, <laughs> but you are, you're seeing that our customers and our patients uh, in the scene up here in Canada, they're starting to be a bit of a segment. They're starting to understand and be able to differentiate these flavor profiles and say, hey, you know what? I don't want something that's just going to couch lock me all goddamn day. I want something that's going to be a little yeah. zippier, a little more fruit forward um, or floral in that sense. Yeah. And um, yeah, if you ever get a chance uh, you know, to, to look at that flavor profile with a cedar and get all over it, man, because it's, really oh, yeah. it's really I just did some work with, with Mother of All Berries too, so I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. So you guys want to go into the blues? Your experience with blues? Yeah, sure. It's um, I mean, when we did the um the seeds for DJ back in the early two thousands, I was floored at the variation. I mean, it was nuts. I mean, it felt like every plant was some different new cultivar. It wasn't coming out of the same seed bag. Yeah. The the, the variegation, the leaf variegation, was like riddled throughout. Um, sure is. You know, uh, the, the, you would see stuff that was super affy, and then you would mm -hmm. see stuff that really kind of probably leaned towards that equatorial Oaxacan uh, yeah. side, that chocolate tie even. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you really believe Dan's, you know, historical background on how he came to get these cultivars together because you saw them in, in the progeny. And, yeah, you and, can see a lot of the variation for sure. Absolutely. It was the seeds, the seeds that we got, and I don't know how they arrived in Canada, but my, my understanding was that they were, these were the seeds that actually came back from Hank at Dutch Passion. Uh -huh. that, so DJ had essentially reclaimed these seeds went after their deal. Was it yeah. Dutch Passion? No, it was Sagamart. Yeah. No. No, no, Sega Martha. Was it Tony? No, it was, he no. works with both. It was Hank. It was Hank, brother. It was no, no, no. It was Saga Martha. It was Tony because he he first he did a deal with. Remember, Saga Martha was selling the blueberry at first. Yeah, and then oh, he and, and, and then Hank took it over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And right. so um, those seeds had come back to Canada. <laughs> those seeds had come back to Canada, and in this little, I think it was actually like a twelve or a fifteen lighter. They grew like. I don't know. It must have been like 350 or 400 plants or something like that. You talking about over at, at G Funks? At G Funks, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. There was there was 350 seeds, um, and uh, we we had to pick males and and all the different lines. Um, picking males was a uh, man. I mean that rubber smell. Remember that bloody rubber smell? Yeah. Well, that to me that the, the whole line was filled with the rubber scents and the chocolate as well. Are you talking yeah. about the males? 
Yeah. Specifically, yeah, also, yeah. Also in the females, though, as well. But, I mean, when you rub the stalks of the males, it just smelled like burnt rubber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always rubbing males Milk like cow that. Cow milking, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, there was there was some really unique stuff. I mean, we were looking for early bars because we were growing for um, – for growers back then. Yeah. We were trying to breed for growers back then, not for customers, which is a whole different headset, right? Sure is. Um, <clears throat> I remember, oh, Jesus, uh, Ryan, we must have had about 60 males that we got down to, and we were trying to select from those. And I mean, we were taking shots in the dark, guys. Of I mean, course. Yeah, with males, you, you, you are. Yeah. Especially yeah. You got to remember, too, that D DJ was also still down in Oregon at the time, so he'd try to come up, but, you know, over an eight-week, ten-week crop, it's not, it, it's, it's, he's not, you're not there enough. Now, right. I, I got a quick question to interject. So with DJ in his book, he is quoted as saying he would take two opposite plants, so constantly making an F1 type, but doing that in each successive generation. Is that, do you think that's what kept up, kept up the variability while also inbreeding in odd ways? Yeah, I mean, to me, I look at it like, I'd, I'd look at his whole catalog as a family. Yeah. Right, and then the individual lines are really like, it's all this. It's it's all intermixed, right? But it kept the variation so high while inbreeding. Yeah, but it, the inbreeding. I mean, it did. It, it it fixed some traits, but it didn't fix a lot of traits. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, there's, there's definitely problem. a downside to doing it that way. Sure. Dan's oh, an interesting individual. Um, it, but it's a very art based method of seed production. Put it that yeah, way. Yeah, it's <laughs> a very unique take on on breeding for sure. Yeah, that's but at sure. the time it was that was cutting edge. At least he was doing it. Somebody yeah, yeah, was dude, doing no, it. There was no well, and he was doing it on his own. Which, that's that's the I think the yeah. to me the most important thing about DJ's work is that he like made his top crosses, created his family, and then never added genes from the outside. Yeah, that was so right. interesting. It's fascinating. Right. And that's really where the to me the value lies because that to me, those that family is is inbred. Yeah. But when you cr when you outcross it, that's where it shines. Yeah, that's what I found, and oh. it, it made me obsessed with the blue line. And uh, and understandably so. I mean, all the crosses we did and other seed banks did with with Dan's stuff all became like these really incredible and uh, famous bars that went down the line. I mean, yeah. Jesus, uh, God, I mean, how many? I mean, this has been obviously sweet tooth, but uh, I mean. All of the stuff that we did with Legends with that B133 male, they were all bangers. And I mean, I loved, I, I never got a chance to recreate any of them. That was kind of a one off. Yeah. Um, but I mean, still always chasing that grape crush. Remember that grape crush, Ryan? That B25? Was it B25? Yeah. yeah. What, was that, what was that mom like? It literally from 10 feet away, it smelled like someone just cracked open a, a can of grape crush. And it was oh, so wow. sweet. It was so strong, and it was the bud structure was incredible. It was a decent yielder. It didn't have that funky variegation. It wasn't um, yeah, uh, it doesn't have that mutation to it. It was literally like the shining star in the right hand corner. Of the room. Yeah, it, it had this really neat star morphology too. Like the round was kind of like <laughs> it's kind of odd to say, but it's like it kind of looked like the top was kind of like smooth, like the Bezos um, rocket. Yeah, yeah. That's true. <laughs> but, but even like the leaves that were coming off, like the subtending leaflets, like they weren't triangular. They were more like ovoid, kind of round. Yeah. Right. And um, 
Yeah, and they had this like purple ring kind of around the edge of the, the leaflet, and it was like a nice kind of lavender purple color. That's so pretty, like almost almost into the blue. It was it was one of the rare ones that were almost in the blue rather than the purple. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, that's that's hard to find in the blues. The blue colors, blue hues, and the the sweet blue was probably the most variated plant that came out of that room going down. I mean, no two no two plants were the same out of out of that. Um, out of those seeds uh and to this day i still see people online growing the sweet blue and there's so much variation i think them. i still have some of those now oh, now that's, that's the cool. sweet skunk blue yeah the sweet i mean this because the sweet skunk itself is all over the map yeah so imagine adding danny's <laughs> danny's mail to it you're just gonna get nothing but a complete whack of individuals but obviously some massive winners and then some massive losers too like where you get those plants that's just bracket on top of bracket yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know uh, make great hash, and, and I'm glad you had that nice one joint from that whole plant. <laughs> and one of you guys actually did S1s of the B130 male, right? I did, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's cool yeah. to keep. That's cool to keep. Yeah, I still got those in there. In the and, and they were, and that would show up regular sex using uh, reverse male. Both. Yeah. Yeah, both males and females. Yeah. That, yeah, that makes sense. No, I'm, um, I'm excited to get into Ryan's, uh, the rest of Ryan's bank once it gets set up in, in, in one spot and to really get a crack at what's in there because it's it's like opening up a history book. And not only that, but that you're creating new history by doing it as well. I, I can't was, even imagine. I was yeah. just going through the list the other day, actually, yesterday, and it's like there's some shit that I just totally forgot that was in there. Well, this is the thing, though, because I, I really believe this to be true, is that we, back in the day, we bred for flavor. Okay. Yeah. So, and that was what our, was our whole mantra, bread for flavor. What people breed for now is for, for COA numbers, mm -hmm. <laughs> like 28s to 31s. So basically and IG pictures, Instagram and, pictures. Right. And IG, and IG pictures. You're absolutely right. There's no flavor. It's about nope. how high perceived, how high can I get from this 29% THC plant? And it's driving me nuts because you're talking, you're drawing from one small population and it's, it's cush based. It's cookies based probably. Yeah. Um, they're all the same flavor profiling. I see these COAs come across my desk all day. That's all I do is look at weed uh, COAs. And I can tell because Ryan's taught me to be quite frank, how to <laughs> read these things properly. You can see the family lines and, and it's all the same. May have 20 different names, but it's all the same damn plant yeah. because they're yeah. breeding for that number. I want to see and go back to breeding for flavor and breeding for flavor profiling because that's what to me makes cannabis unique and interesting. And and um, then you can go from there and then have all these different flavored hashes and live as in the live rosin that we didn't have back in the day that Absolutely. we could actually breed for specific end use products, right? Yeah. But it's not going to happen until R and D becomes the main focus of these companies, um, and people are just going to be growing the same old tired shit all the time. Yeah. It's it's the same way in the cut flower industry. I mean, if you're a grower that grows cut flowers, you don't breed plants, right? Yeah. It's a specific it's yeah. a specific model. And then, I mean, even down in Salinas, when I was uh, I was down there a few years ago, working, there was a, a grower that was growing the um, Phalaenopsis thaliana, the the orchid. Yeah, yeah. Orchid that you see everywhere with the nice pretty leaves and yeah. all the different patterns on it. And and they're actually the only orchid producer in North America. Might might even be the world, but it was definitely in North America that grows orchids from seed. Yeah, that's a hard thing to do. Wow. I used to be an orchid collector, and growing orchids from seed is not fucking easy. It, it yeah, so they, what they right? do is they grow everything from seed, and then they sort it by color, and they submit it that way. And then anything that's new and special, they send into tissue culture, and they get, you know, that's they get right, yeah. they, they put it into the TC process, and they can get millions. 
once you find that unique flower. But yeah, they're that's their process. <laughs> they just grow everything from seed rather than clone. And it's cool that there's somebody doing that. But yeah, if they weren't doing that, everybody else is growing from tissue culture, right? Absolutely. So like, as you know, once you're growing from tissue culture, it's great for for producing, you know, armies of the same plant and that are sterile. Sure. But you can't get anything new from it, right? The only way to get anything new is to be grown from seed. Yeah. So you, I, to me, I really see that as a unique business model. Yeah, that's pretty cool too. Knowing knowing the orchid, I, I collected orchids for so many years, and and knowing knowing how hard that is to do, that's a really interesting, unique business model. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the the the, the grower, but you should if you're down in like the Salinas or Monterey area, you should go and check out their grow. Yeah, I need to go up there soon. It's pretty cool. So I got a question for you, my friend. So down in California, I mean, how often, like how much time does a cultivar get down there before it's out of favor? Like what's the average timeline? Dude, okay, so I, I, I want to say there's at least a eight to nine year run that we've been seeing on the most popular stuff. So like, I think it's getting a lot slower, whereas, you know, like uh, it gets popular in California. You'll see it kind of chase up to the other states four or five years used to be eight to nine years before it started hitting all the states, hitting the high times magazine stuff that we favor down here. But now it's, it's getting faster. Uh, I mean, the OG Kush, I'm, I'm shocked that OG Kush is still in so demand. Uh, it had, it's had the longest run, I think out of any of the, the clones down here before that it was like hogs breath, P91, um, stuff like that. You know, that was real popular in Southern California, but now you couldn't even find most of that stuff if you wanted to, except in seed form now, you know? But OG Kush has stood the test of time. Cookies, uh, I think, I don't know. Is that the new OG? It's going to be around forever and everybody's just going to not be able to get high after their first hit? Well, it's, this is, this it's is why I ask. Because in Canada, you got nine months with the cultivar before it. You, no one wants it anymore. Wow. So yeah, how, it's, so it's, how, yeah, so it's partially, partially the that. liquor distribution branches, but it's, I mean, it is a fucked up situation. Like, I think what happened is, in the past, it was the opposite way. There, there was more variation and more um, more different types of branded cannabis on the dispensary shelf. Just because, I mean, California, your your dispensary market was like way more into a professional CPG type system where you had real products like you had like potato chips and soda pops oh, yeah, and yeah. cars and everything right from the start. Yeah. Great vape, shatter, rosin. I mean, you had it all. Yeah, and our our. A rollout of dispensaries was a hell of a lot less professional, more flower based, no real, like, I would say, Product. finished products like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that now that we've got legalization and that brought in the advent of all these different types of products. And so I think it's kind of, it's almost as if like the Canadian buyer or at least the distributor, the, distrib the liquor distribution buyers are like a lot more fickle. Yeah. You know, it's like if it's not new, they don't want it. If it's, if, you know, I mean, it's like Kip said earlier, it's like, you know, our liquor distribution brands, how many types of Merlot or Pinot Noir do you think that they keep on their shelves? Yeah, right. right. Like, hundreds of different producers. Yeah. Right. Whereas in the cannabis business, it's like if you already got two producers growing a named variety, they don't want that named variety anymore. And does that lead to lots of name changing or is that even possible in the cannabis yeah. market? the Time. Yeah, it's, it's huge here. Too. It's, it's ridiculous. So ridiculous. But what's weird here is that they'll change an OG name to another OG name, and then you have ninety kinds of OG. And this is for reals. Any 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 dispensary in California, you go in, you'll have half the menu, if not three quarters of the menu, OG Kush, yeah. different kinds. You know. Yeah, and how do you how do you sort through that as a consumer? 
shit, I have no clue. Right. It's all, usually it's all By the same price. cut anyways. That's, well, I'll tell you how they do it. They buy price. Yeah. I look at PO, I look at point of sale data every Monday morning for every province in this country. And yeah. that, oh, what, what, what are people buying? <laughs> well, my answer is the cheapest shit they can. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's only about 8 to 12% of us that are buying the expensive stuff. Everybody yeah. else is buying the cheapest shit. And they, they frankly don't care what it is. They yeah, don't. and that's it's a funny thing about this industry is that like you hear everybody, at least all these industry people, talk about how everybody only wants the top end and the cream of the crop. And oh, the, yeah. <laughs> but the truth is, is it's like they're allowed 5%, right? Like those yeah. guys, everybody that's talking about that, yeah, that might be true for your your small mortgage or market, right? But yeah. um, the truth is, is when you look at the aggregate market data, people want Budweiser. Yeah, they, they still sell brickweed in our dispensaries here in my city. Literal really? compressed brickweed is available. Is, would that be considered an import? <laughs> yes. <laughs> to raise the price. I mean, really, it's, it's crazy. Like, I, I look down and I see literal compressed brick every single collective I've ever been into in Bakersfield. It's crazy. Uh, thrown, thrown across the it, it leads to this fake, you know, that, that whole OG thing, just to go back there for a second, yeah. it leads to this really fake um, <laughs> situation where it's like the appearance of diversity, right? Yeah. It's like you, you, you have the appearance of choice, but like, yeah, there's all these different names, but it's all the same. Yeah, for right? sure. And then really like, you know, they might even exclude like the best version of the OG, right? It's like yeah. the, the liquid distribution board says, no, we already got three of those. We don't want to stock it anymore. And they're probably turning away the best one, right? They're, not, they're simply not qualified to judge what cannabis should be on the shelves and what shouldn't. It's, it's, it's a completely flawed system. Um, and it's not going to change until the provinces get out of the way. And when's the last time a province uh, wanted to give away a cash cow that they've got right now? Exactly. Um, and unfortunately, the quite simply put, um, the only time these kinds of things are taken away or, or, or given back into private, um, uh, private hands is when conservative governments take control. And so you, yeah. <laughs> so you take the good with that the bad a there, right? Sword. <laughs> yeah, right? So, but you know, my point was is that here in Canada, so you get a nine month run with one VAR before it just stops selling, right? Because people are done with it. They want the new next thing. So yep. how do you support a breeding program when it takes you a year and a half to come up with a cut and it's done in nine months? Yeah. There's it, no there's no return on investment. None. No. It's right? all yeah. everything me and me and a lot of the other guys that produce big seeds here in, in the United States, a lot of us all kind of it's all a shot in the dark right now. Everything is a shot in the dark and hoping and a lot of suck at hyping shit. Like uh, I suck at that. Like I, I feel like a used car salesman, so I don't like doing it. I don't want to do it. And if you don't do that and you don't wear the jewels in front like you're rich, you're not going anywhere and you're not hyping anything and you're not starting a hype, you know? Yeah, how ridiculous is that? Hey, eh? fuck. This is just the thing that I've hated about the seed market since for so long. It's, yeah. it's just like it's all based on bullshit. Yeah, it's all based on ego, Ryan. Like it always was. It's 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 ego. It's entitlement. It's 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 the loudest guy in the bloody room. Like let's yep. let's be honest about that. Like even back in our day, who was the guy that sold the most seeds? The guy that screamed the most in the soapbox. Yeah, your Charles, and and you could go down the road. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's that's what it was like. Um, the people that uh, really that do the quiet work, you know, and 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 just kind of put their head down to the. You don't never hear about those guys. You've no. got to be a self promoter. Um, because no one else is going to do it for you, unfortunately. And, uh, that's why when we were, you know, both Ryan and I, when we were working those boards back in the day, we give away hundreds of free seeds. Cause oh, that yeah. was, your, 
that was your best way to get advertising was have a grower grow your seeds and go, man, this shit's the bomb, right? Like, yeah. Um, and you, but you can't do any of that in this legal market right now. You know, it's 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 all so so much oversight and so much bullshit laws that surround it. Um, it's going to be tough, but I got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm waiting for someone to come out and beat the cookies brand. Cause I'm, I'm already tired of seeing that shit. I mean, that whole branding and marketing to me is childish and beneath most cannabis customers. Yeah. Um, they just but, hired a, a breeder who has never made seeds. And like, I know the guy personally, he has never made seeds. He's a marketing guy, but he's now their new breeder. That sounds, that sounds pretty, on, pretty on brand for cookies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it goes. You know? That's really sad. But yeah. yeah, until things change and get taken out of some of the governmental hands up here, it's going to be the same old, same old. Um, <clears throat> I just hope that, uh, you know, Ryan and, and breeders like himself can find alternate ways to get their wares into the market that are it's still desperately needed. It's so desperately needed new flavors. Yeah. The COVID, COVID also took a lot of us out. Um, I, I don't know why. I don't know the correlation. I don't even know if it's causation versus correlation. I don't know. But when COVID hit, a lot of us kind of started slowing down quite a bit as far as being able to sell seeds, how much seed was moving, how many people were buying seeds. So that's been an interesting thing to recover from, too. It was the unknown, man. Yeah, yeah well, I think you guys are experiencing what the rest of the world has gone through. I mean, you know, Amsterdam was the only place in the world. And then when BC became online, it was kind of the leading hotspot for genetics. And then – yeah. Now, I mean, that was when, you know, I mean, talk about like 1995 to call it 2010. Yeah. But since since 2010, I mean, you guys have, we have a whole bunch of seed banks popping up in the States now, right? Yeah. A lot. And so many. Americans are ordering from American banks. Why would you risk the border when you can order from within within the borders, right? And I know, I, it, it's flipped the script, right? It's flipped the script. Now oh, yeah. all you see, I mean, are up here, and I, I bitch about it all the time because I can, but all I see are Yankee, Southern, SoCal Yankee seeds up here. That's all, like, gelatos, the cakes, the cookies. Like, I'm so, if I, I, I can't take another cake. I can't take another cake. No, no. no. Um, Mendo I'm breath, sorry. garlic breath. Like, I mean, it's, 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 and, you know, there's 10 new licenses given out every Friday. Like, there's only so much, you know, cannabis, so many cannabis buyers here in Canada. There's only so much weed that they're going to buy. And yeah, it's, it's the same 20 things because they, everyone's running to that side of the boat and, you know, then they'll run to the other side of the boat when the next new thing comes up, but it's all coming out of Cali right now. I don't know of any Canadian breeders that are doing any significant work um, at any level right now, to be frank. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it's sad. Well, if, frankly, there's more American breeders up here doing work that are getting like, you know, like there's a few big American banks that are working with cultivators up here just because that's who the cultivators knew. They, they, they thought that the, you know, the Canadian or the, the American guys were the hype. So they went down and made deals with them. Yeah. And now you got like American breeders here and Canadian breeders can't even get fucking work. Yeah. Right? It that's would be true. nice. It would be nice to be able to, to mobilize the old guard guys that have been around for a long time to kind of bond together and figure this puzzle out, you know, because it only benefits the consumer. It's, people tough, are doing it's, like, it's like Kip said. I mean, there's so many fucking big egos involved. Yeah. It's like to try to get everybody under the same tent and, and, and paddling in the same direction. Good fucking luck. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. That's what always makes me laugh when I hear about these potential processor co-ops and things like that. I'm like, man, you can't get two growers in a room to look at a black wall and decide what color it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, good luck trying to think about packaging, processing, distro, marketing. Like, good luck. <laughs> yeah, and seed makers uh, all consider themselves at some point some type of artist. You know what I mean? As opposed to just a, a, a bunk farmer that knows one crop. 
yeah, it's, it's hard to get the egos rounded up. Yeah. We guys gotta find that one sugar daddy that likes to smoke enough weed. He's got more money than brains, and then let, let us all have Adam. And <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> let me show you the way, Seth Rogen. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's so true. Somebody <laughs> needs to. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Listen, we're still young at this. We're still new at this, guys. I mean, truly, let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, the legal, the legality of all of this is what are we five, five, six years deep? Uh, on a rec market way. Um, you know, my daughter is 11 now, you know, she ever decides she wants to get into this industry and in 10 years, she's going to look at this bunch of fucking dinosaurs compared to what's going to go on in 10 years from now. Oh, right? for sure. Uh, we can bitch and moan all we want, but I'll tell you, it's better than me checking my, my next Nokia brick phone off the bridge every four days because I'm scared some assholes reading my text. You know? That's so, a good point. <laughs> that's a good point. Dude. I'll call it a win, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I, it's been nice chatting about all this. I don't, oh my God. It's been amazing. Kind of both of you guys. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to both of you guys. Um, I'd love to have you both back on it, together or individually so we can cover some more ground. But it, this, is, this has been an honor. Absolute yeah. honor. Pleasure meeting both of you guys. Uh, it's really yeah. nice to meet, um, you know, I like to call them family members because we all come from the same tribe. And I, I mean that honestly. Not yeah, for sure. Um, sure. I, I don't get a chance to anymore. In my business these days, and Ryan can attest to it, I'm, I'm staring at CO, <laughs> COAs and Excel <laughs> sheets these days. And my, my watering wand days are behind me, unfortunately, right now. So... Um, to talk with folks with passion um, and insight is uh, it's a nice break guys so thank you very much for this opportunity yeah hit me up anytime dude anytime yeah. all right I'll talk to thank you guys you later and, and thank you so much all right yeah, all the best. cheers cheers, cheers.